You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John chapter 12, verse 37. Though Jesus had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. Lord, who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore they could not believe, for again Isaiah said, He has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. Heavenly Father, we look to you, O Lord, as always, to teach us, to guide us. And as we have prayed at some length, Father, we recognize that, Lord, we could write messages and we could even write messages that are interesting. Uh, We could write messages that would maybe perhaps even put people on the edge of their seat. Father, these messages are useless without you. Only you, O Lord, can change hearts. Only you, O Lord, can reveal things into the deep recesses of our hearts. Only you can uh, discern the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. And we ask, O Father, that you be pleased to do that, for it's your work that is needed here, Father. It is you who we need. It is your voice that we need to hear, not the voice of any man. So, O Father, we pray that you would speak to us this morning from your word. Speak to us from this text, which is... Largely unbelieved by uh, much, uh, I might even dare say, much of the church. So, Father, I pray that, Lord, you would instruct us from your word this morning. Instruct us in these things. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. You'll notice that um, we began, uh, I said that we You know, we kind of began in verse 37, but uh, being a little tired this morning, I should have started really at the beginning uh, or at the middle of verse 36, and it's not too late to do that. I think we can still do that. If you notice, you'll note that verse 36, probably in most of your Bibles, is split in half. You might even have a subheading like the ESV has. It says something like the unbelief of the people. I'm not sure what the NIV has. uh, you see a rainbow study, a rainbow Bible right in front of me there. Is there a subheading above the second half, second half of verse 36? Tammy, I don't mean to put you on the spot. Right ahead of 37. So right in that area. But verse 36 um, is one of those verses where we, in our previous study, we stopped in the very middle of it. And this is no slam. You know, the versification, I think I said this last week, that the versification is absolutely wonderful. It's not inspired. And unfortunately, about the only time you ever hear about the versification is when it seems to be off. You never, how many hear, how many hear compliments about the versification? Could you imagine giving the task of putting, assigning verses to the Bible? I mean, what a task that would have been. Uh, but in verse 36, it's, it really, uh, I, per- perhaps this is a place where the versification is, uh, is off a little bit. All this to say is, 
You know, Jesus begins in verse 36 by saying, while you have the light, believe in the light, that you may become sons of light. We stopped right there. And then this morning, where I meant to start was when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. It's really really where I intended to start this morning. Uh, And if you look at that second half of verse 36, that's a chilling statement, isn't it? Did I thoroughly confuse you, or are we still on board? I'm looking around to see signs of one or the other. I think we're all good. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself. Uh, That's a chilling statement. And it's a statement that we've seen before. If you turn back to John chapter 8, the very last verse, verse 59. What was going on there? And as soon as you read the verse, you're going to remember if you've been sitting in this study, as I think all of us have, uh, there they pick up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. And you remember the noise that I made about that, that Jesus, Jesus um, departing from the temple like that uh, is to really, I think, in many ways, draw our minds to the word Ichabod. Does that mean anything to you? Ichabod. Uh, the glory has departed. Um, you can read about that in the history books. You can read about that in First Samuel, if you will. The glory has departed. Uh, here what we have taking place is the glory departing from the temple. And when we come to verse 36 of chapter 12, when Jesus had said them, these things, he departed and he hid himself. What is this to bring to mind? It's to bring to mind those chilling statements that are scattered here and there in the prophets where the Lord, after warning of apostasy over and over again, he hides himself from uh, the people. And what we have taking place here is really, for all practical purposes, the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. It's the end of his, uh, uh, not his earthly ministry, but his public ministry, the end of his uh, public ministry. Um, and uh, I, I want to show you something. I didn't really recognize this until later in my own personal study of John's gospel in preparing these messages. But if you look at chapter 1, if you start maybe for verse 9, there you see the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. Of course, that's Jesus. He was in the world. And the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. If you look at verses 11 and 12 especially, he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. We we could look at this verse as an outline. This would be chapters 1 through 12. He came to his own in this public ministry, which was largely a ministry to the lost sheep of Israel, wasn't it? So he came to his own. But his own did not receive him. And if you look at verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. That's chapters 13 and following. Um, it's just helpful, I think, where we see that outline. Um, others have, uh, that's not novel to me, I didn't come up with that on my own. Uh, others have noticed that. And uh, I've pointed that out. I think it's very helpful because what, where we're at right now is, I mean, he has came to his own. He's come to his own. His own did not receive him. And he has now uh, departed 
uh, in all, for all practical purposes, his public ministry is now just about complete. The one exception would be the crucifixion being public, of course. Uh, but he is now the focus of John, uh, as we come to chapter 13, will be on uh, the disciples. Now, before we begin this morning, I want to introduce an important principle. And, you, you know, I, Martin Lloyd-Jones, I don't know if that name means much to anybody. If it doesn't, look him up. Uh, he's one of my absolute favorites. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is regarded by many as probably the greatest preacher of the 20th century, at least in the English-speaking world, uh, or we might even say in England. Uh, it was extraordinary. Uh, he was a medical doctor before he was a pastor, and he had the, um, the academic credentials to, to practice medicine before he was legally old enough to do so. So he was an extraordinary scholar. Uh, but he used to say all the time that... Um, the modern man, of course, he's preaching in the 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way into the 70s. He died, I think, in 82. But uh, he would talk about the modern man and modernism and how we love detail. And that's so true even today. I mean, I know I'm one person and I, I love details. I like to dig down and get all these details. You know that from listening. Um, but he would question us and say, you know, instead of running into these details, we can run into these details. He wasn't saying that the details weren't important, but he was saying, listen, if we don't get the general principles right, then the details, where are they going to go? Uh, and there's a, there's a principle here, I think, that needs to be sounded from the housetops. And that principle is never underestimate the fallenness of the human heart. Because it seems to me that um, that's happening on such a massive scale today, where we're underestimating our problem. And when we underestimate our problem, then uh, we are going to be really on a trajectory to come up with a lot of superficial cures. If we don't think we have that big of a problem, then we're not going to be in search of that big of a cure. And if you look around and you see some of the, pro pro the proposed cures for the human predicament, you can see quite clearly that the human problem has been vastly underestimated. And we shouldn't be surprised at that when we look around at the world and its instruments and devices and schemes. But unfortunately, it's, it's, I think it's one of the chief and principal reasons that, uh, that we have a lot of the fads. I mean, the church, the evangelical church especially, is so um, given over to this fad and then to that fad and to that fad. You have the church growth fads and you have these fads, you have those fads. And now it's you know, critical race theory and woke church and all of that stuff going on. It's just happening all over again. And I think really at the beginning, I mean, if we underestimate man's fallenness, then we believe uh, we can evangelize people in our own strength. Now, we might say, we might pay lip service, say, no, 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 it's all God. But um, really? Is that really what we believe? I mean, when you look at people and the way they're chasing after methods, you know, always looking for a new method. If we could just get a new method. And you'll hear people talk about these methods. And, you know, we've tried that method. It don't work. Now we're going to move on to this next method and see if it works. And, um, or perhaps it would be persuasion or logic or knowledge. In the Reformed Church, we might be tempted to say, oh, it's going to be our knowledge or our sound theology. Um, not to, not to dismiss, dismiss those things as being important. They're very, very important. But um, let's not um, uh, underestimate um, how 
fallen we are. I think if we wanted to do a test on our hearts, you know, one of the most telling signs that we have fallen into self-sufficiency in these regards is just to look at our prayer life. Um, just a quick glance at our prayer life and, and, and our prayer life actually reveals a lot about ourselves. Um, and I don't mean this, I don't, I'm not throwing this out so that we can all sit and feel guilty because oftentimes, you know, you hear me bring up the prayer life and oh, he's on the prayer life again. Oh man, this is going to be a real slam, you know, um, because oftentimes that's, that's where the evil one hits us the hardest, isn't it? Is in our prayer life. But let's think about this for a moment. How much time do we spend praying and wrestling? I mean, wrestling for lost souls. Um, is it is it a brief petition before bedtime, or are we really praying and wrestling for lost souls? And uh, that that can be a um, an, a marker uh, that we have fallen in at least some sense of self sufficiency. But our passage this morning reveals one important aspect of our fallenness and. The commentators use a word. Perhaps this will be a new word for us. I don't know how. I, you probably no one has already this morning used the word obduracy. Does anybody wake up this morning and use the word obduracy? I mean, <laughs> I don't think so. I'm only using it because I got it in my sermon here. But it happens to be one of the best words for this particular problem. What is obduracy? I have a definition. It's a um, it's a resistance. It's a stubborn resistance to persuasion or listen to this one, or to softening influences. Uh, it's a word that I learned from reading commentaries and reading theology. Uh, obduracy. I'll give you the, the definition again. It's a stubborn resistance to persuasion or softening influence. And does our passage speak of obduracy? Yes, it does. And our passage also speaks of the consequences of this obduracy. I, I could put it this way, and you've heard me put it this way before in the past if you've been around for any length of time. There's a line in the sand that's known only to God. You've heard me say this before, right? And if we continually reject the gospel, if we continually hold our hands out with a posture of obduracy, stubbornly resisting, stubbornly resisting the persuasion of the gospel, Stubbornly resisting the softening influence of the gospel. There is, every time we do this, we inch a little closer to a line. We don't know where that line is, but there's a line in the sand. And once that line is crossed, there's no point of return. And it's one of the great lessons we get from God's dealings with Pharaoh back in Exodus. You know, um, now maybe only a few of us will remember when we went through Exodus. We went through the first half of Exodus, verse by verse. And you can remember all those plagues. It was a long time ago. But you remember Moses being sent by God to Pharaoh. And, and you, you remember that drama. And you can read, you can read that um, drama in the first half of Exodus where Moses comes to Pharaoh and we're told that Pharaoh hardens his heart. And Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart, and Pharaoh hardens his heart. And then all of a sudden, we're told that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God hardened his heart. Now, somewhere along the way, Pharaoh crossed that line. And once he crossed that line, the, the deal was done. 
He was still in power for a short period of time, but there was no point of return. Um, and that is the consequences. Um, and ironically, the fathers who were, re who were redeemed from, from Egypt found themselves in a similar position out in the wilderness. If you read uh, the, the, the first five books of the Bible, you'll read about those wilderness wanderings. And basically, the fathers are wandering around in an area about the size of Beaver County, Pennsylvania, uh, wandering around really waiting to die. Uh, because they had crossed that line. You know, obstinance is another good word. I have obstinance here in my notes. And, you know, as I think about obstinance, that might be a word that we're more familiar with. John Bunyan used uh, the word obstinate as the, one of his characters. If you've ever read, read Pilgrim's Progress, there's a character in Pilgrim's Progress, and his name is obstinate. You know, how would you like to be named obstinate? <laughs> His name will be obstinate. You know, what is obstinate? It's stubbornly holding to an opinion regardless of reason, persuasion, or argument. And that's a good word, too. But abduracy, abduracy is when you're just refusing to be softened, if you will, uh, by the gospel itself. The psalmist captures the warning really well in Psalm 95.7. Today, if you hear his voice, do not what? Harden your heart as they did in the wilderness, uh, as Pharaoh did in his palace. Now, if you look at verse 37 with this introduction, in fact, let's look at verse 36b, if you will. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. Uh, in verse 37, though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. They still did not believe in him. They're still holding their arms out. Jesus did so many miracles, but they're still holding, his, they're holding their arms out. And, and we have seen in our study that these miracles are not bare signs or displays of power like a magician would do in front of an audience or like some miracle worker would do in front of an audience. No, the miracles are meant to point to divine realities. That's why John uses the word signs. And we could think of a couple of them. We could think of the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. You know, Jesus heals him. He's invalid. He's been invalid for a long time. And how does Jesus heal him? He simply says, get up. He simply commands this man's body to function. You know, now we, we don't have that kind of power. You know, when, when Alex learns that a woman has collapsed uh, on the street... Uh, you can't just simply say, and they're speaking of, speaking of Alex, he's famous. He just come in and uh, he just walked in. Don't anybody turn around and look at him. But he couldn't simply just tell her to get up. Here the invalid at the pool of Bethesda. And Jesus commands him with a command, with a divine fiat. He tells this man to get up. And what happens? Does that body ignore its sovereign creator? No. <laughs> it gets up. And what is that pointing to? It's pointing to Jesus as the creator, as the sovereign creator. And, and this whole event is pitched in the context of the Sabbath, which is a creation ordinance. It's pitched in that. 
So as creator, uh, we're to learn that he's not only the creator, but he's the author of the Sabbath. He instituted its creation. Jesus heals this, he heals this man on a Sabbath. That's no coincidence. And why is he doing that? Because his opponents have really uh, reversed the Sabbath. Instead of the Sabbath being a blessing for mankind, they had created all these laws for the Sabbath day, practically making it unbearable. They lived to serve the Sabbath instead of the Sabbath being a gift that was to serve them. And Jesus pitches this in front of them. And Jesus is showing himself to be Lord over that which they misunderstood, which they were, which were, they were mangling and twisting into legalism. Uh, Jesus is Lord of creation. And we've seen also with the uh, man born blind, we've seen that more recently, so I won't go into that, but Jesus says, I'm the light of the world. And then what's he do? He heals the man who's been born blind to demonstrate that. And then Lazarus, Jesus makes the... He makes the statement, I am the resurrection and the life. And then what's he do? He raises Lazarus from the dead. So we see that these, these, these miracles are not just bare demonstrations of power, if you will. They point to divine realities. And yet they still did not believe in him. If you look at verse 38 there, so that the word spoken by Isaiah might be fulfilled. You see that? In verse 38, so that the word spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? This first quote in verse 38 is taken from Isaiah 53 in verse 1. In Isaiah's context, the words are words of judgment that are pronounced upon Israel, uh, upon unbelieving Israel. But in our context this morning, uh, they're, in essence, a repeat of the earlier judgment, if you will, in our context. Notice it says, who has believed what he heard from us? Um, what, what would be the meaning of that in John's context? Well, that would be Jesus' preaching ministry. That'd be his preaching and teaching ministry. Uh, who has believed what he heard from us? Heard what? What's Jesus been saying over and over again? Uh, well, we could sum it up in, in, in one statement that the Father sent him. How many times have we seen Jesus make noise about the fact that it's the Father who sent me? Uh, yet they've refused to believe. And the words, arm of the Lord, uh, what does that mean? Well, by the arm of the Lord, we meant the power of the Lord. Uh, by the arm of the Lord is meant the power of the Lord. Um, and that would be Jesus' powerful miracles slash signs. The miracles are not simply given just as demonstrations of power. Uh, they're given to... They're given as signs to signify divine realities. Um, and in spite of all of this, they refuse to believe in him. But then, we, but then we look at verse 39, and you see the word therefore. I've pointed that word out many, many times. The word therefore is an important word. We, a lot of times we'll, we'll go right past that word therefore and not catch the significance of it. But it's a word, it's a word of conclusion. It's a word of consequence. And if you see there, therefore... Okay, they did not believe in him in, my, in the midst of many signs and miracles. Therefore, they could not believe. That's, you feel the force of that? They could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, verse 40, he has blinded them. He has blinded their eyes. He has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Now, this is an astonishing verse, isn't it? What is that verse saying? That verse is saying God has blinded them? Now, 
Feeling the force of this, there's been attempts to explain it away. Uh, one scholar suggested it's the devil who's doing the blinding. And of course, if you, you don't need to turn there, I've got it written here in front of me, 2 Corinthians 4.4 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Who is the image of God? Has, has the evil one blinded the minds of the world? There's, that's 100% correct. Um, is that what's going on in this particular context? Is that what's happening there? Very unlikely. Uh, D.A. Carson points out the ruler of this world is too far away from verse 48 to admit this interpretation. The ruler of this world is brought up, but he is early in, early, much earlier in the chapter. Um, it is, um, I, I believe we can say emphatically, it is the Lord who is doing the blinding here. And there's, there's great unbelief uh, in this matter. And for that matter, there's a lot of doctrines in the church that are just flatly uh, disbelieved. You know, I could give you a, a short list here. The doctrines of election are explained away. Instead of seeing them in Scripture and seeing them for what they are, there's explanations given that explain them away. The doctrines of predestination are explained away. Uh, we were studying perseverance of the saints uh, a few Wednesdays ago, and I made a comment about how that's hardly believed by anybody uh, anymore. The doctrine of the perseverance of saints, which is so clear. I, I was bringing up passage after passage after passage that shows the, um, the perseverance of the saints. Now, we have all kinds of warnings that suggest that you could, you could lose, because that's what they are, warnings. They're warnings. Uh, but those who fall away, John makes it really clear, anyone who's fallen away, if you fall, those who have fallen away from us were never of us. This is one of this, these are great, comforting, glorifying doctrines. One after another are disbelieved and explained away by the church. And uh, this morning, what's happening in our text this morning is the great doctrine of judicial hardening. Judicial hardening. It's taught in Scripture. It's taught in Scripture in Exodus. It's taught in Scripture in Romans 9 through 11. Uh, it's taught in Scripture in John chapter 12. And um, it's meant, I mean, what's happening here in our passage is what we call in theology judicial hardening. Uh, I like to explain it as a line in the sand known only to God, where if we persist in stubborn rejection of the gospel, we can find ourselves beyond the point of return. Uh, well, why would God, why would God uh, record these things for us? Uh, to wake us up to wake up anybody that might be on the fence, thinking they're on a fence in some kind of neutral position where there is no neutrality. I mean, we're, Jesus said, if you're not with us, you're against us. There's only two choices that can be uh, chosen from here. Um, so um, the crowd, if we look back, you know, the crowd is, is on the fence is asking in verse 34, who is the son of man? Or who is this son of man? And what does Jesus say and in response to this crowd's question? He says, the light is among you for a little while. Walk uh, for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light. And notice that last phrase, lest darkness overtake you. Lest darkness overtake you. Um, in verse 37, we have those chilling words that darkness has overtaken you. Um, in verse 39, that is, 
Therefore, they could not believe. What has happened? Darkness has overtaken them. Their eyes are blinded. And you can notice the spiritual element there. Uh, they had physical light. You know, they, they had physical light, so they were able to see miracles. They were able to see the miracles. In other words, they could see. It wasn't a matter of them being born blind. They actually were able to see. They knew miracles had taken place. You notice no one's arguing about the validity of the miracles. That's one thing that's really interesting about the Gospels is they don't argue about whether the miracles happened or not. They, they know the miracles took place. Uh, they're not arguing about whether they took place or not. So we could say, well, how is it they were blind? Well, they're blind because they cannot see, they cannot see what the miracles signify. Um, Jesus had done so many signs before them. They saw the miracles, but not the signs. They saw the miracle, but had no perception of what the miracles pointed to. Now, someone might argue and object and say, well, if they had no perception, how could they be guilty? Well, they had all this light, didn't they? They had all this light. Their problem was each time they hardened their hearts towards the light. That's the judicial part of this. They had the light, but each time they received the light, they hardened their heart. The light never softened them. That's where that word obduracy is such a word. You know, we ought to add that to our, to our vocabulary because it's a perfect word. Um, they refused the softening influences of the gospel. Instead, they hardened their hearts. So each time it shined, they hardened their heart further and further until they reached that line in the sand that's known only to God. And then it was too late. Darkness overtook them. And they crossed that line. And he blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and be healed. It's the same thing that happened to Pharaoh prior to the Exodus. And we're told in the midst of that conflict, you know, over and over again, uh, he refused to soften his heart. Um, and, you know, it's just a, you know, I'd like to say a couple of words. I mean, someone might ask, well, how exactly does the Lord harden the heart? You know, how exactly does he harden our hearts? Well, it's uh, undoubtedly many ways he could do it, but one of the chief and principal ways I think he does it is he departs. Our text tells us that Jesus hid himself, doesn't it? He departs. I mean, he just, he leaves. Uh, he hides his face. Uh, you know, that second half of verse 36, when Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. So when he departs, he leaves them alone to themselves. Now, what's going to be the product of that? Well, the product of that, you know, Donald and I were just praying before the service, and we were praying for the Lord to work in this service. Why are we praying for the Lord to work in this service? Because we want, to, we want him to be glorified in this service. We can't do anything without him. If he were to depart from us right now, what, what do you suppose would happen to us before the hour is over? We'd be right back to where we were. I mean, we require him every moment of every day. We require his grace to work in our hearts. Uh, we, we are utterly dependent upon the Lord. And his chief and principal way of hardening a heart is just, okay, you guys want to keep, keep your arms out like this. You keep your arms out like this. You keep your arms out like this. All right, I'm going to leave you to yourself. And we do the rest. So here we see the... The consequences of stubborn unbelief, obduracy, obstinacy, whatever you want to call it. And 
We can hear the psalmist saying today, if you hear his heart, hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Because each time we harden our heart, we take one step closer to the lie. Um, it's not a real lovely message, is it? Rick, please tell us you're not going to close here now. No, I'm not. No, I'm not. Um, I, I think the, these kind of messages actually um, make us thankful that our eyes are open. And let none of us take any credit. I mean, if your eyes are open, if your ears are open, someone say, well, how do I know if my eyes are open? How do I know if my ears are open? Do you love Jesus? Do you love him? I mean, is, is there, is he the most prized thing in your life? If the answer is yes to that. Your eyes are open. Um, and now all these great doctrines of election, predestination, perseverance of the saints, they become glorious. Um, he's opened his eyes, or he's opened your eyes to him. Uh, he has wedded himself to you by way of the covenant of grace, and you are his bride. Now, how well do you think the how well do you think the great shepherd of souls is going to take care of his bride? Especially when he calls, he calls human, he calls us earthly, uh, earthly husbands to take care of our brides in this way. You know, I usually, we, you hear this a lot in weddings, you know, in Ephesians chapter 5, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. What is Jesus up to? Let me read it to you again. The charge here is husbands, look to Jesus. Love your wives the way Jesus loves the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. That is in magnificence. <laughs> if your eyes are open... You're in this process. Jesus has you in this process where he's going to produce absolute magnificence in us so that he can present us to himself, that she might be holy and without blemish. And it is focus in response to this that husbands should love their wives. Um, so that's a better place. Uh, what do you think, Alex? Is that a better place to end? Um, that's a better place to wrap this up. Um, when we look at these things. But this message is important. We dare not, you know, one of the reasons I think the church is in the state that it's in is because these things get skipped. We can't skip these things. This could be the difference of somebody sitting, thinking they're on a fence and saying, wait a second, you mean if I keep rejecting this and I keep rejecting this, I could actually cross over a line and there's a line in the sand that I can't see and I could actually cross over this and be lost eternally? Yes. The answer to that is emphatically, yes. Where's the line? Only God knows. But you can cross it. And once you've crossed it, even though you're still alive here and now, maybe thinking that you have hope, once that line has been crossed, in Pharaoh's case, it was pretty much over, wasn't it? In the case of the fathers who were wandering around in the wilderness, what were they wandering around in circles in the Holy Land for? They were wandering around waiting to die. Isn't that how it goes? Am I an error there? 
He swore in his wrath, this generation will not enter my rest. So the deal was over. They crossed the line. Blessed, Jesus says, blessed are your eyes. He says this to his disciples, blessed are your eyes for they see and your ears for they hear. Do you see with your eyes? Do you hear with your ears? If the answer is yes to that, take stock of that because there's where the strength is to walk with Jesus. There's where the strength is. Oh, Lord, you did this for me. And don't take any credit for yourself. I know better than that. You won't. It's all his doing. It's all his doing. But if there's anybody here this morning that could be described as maybe being on the fence. Um, you know, I had a seminary professor who used to say, man, I wouldn't wait another hour. I really wouldn't wait another hour. Uh, that same seminary professor pleaded with his parents. He pleaded with his parents to come to Christ, and they never did. They never did. So when he issued that warning, it was powerful. He would say, what are you waiting for? You know, what are you waiting for? A better sermon? What are you waiting for? And that's the message we have to take out inside of these four walls. That's the message we've got to put up on the Internet. What are you waiting for? Why are you going to wait till tomorrow? It might not come. But if we're here, well, then the message is, well, let's praise him. What are we waiting for? Let us praise him. Amen? Heavenly Father, we so thank you for your salvation. We so thank you, Father, that you've opened up our eyes and our ears and you've opened it, Father, we, don't, we can't even begin to grasp the blessing of our salvation. And then we read these texts and we see this doctrine of judicial hardening. Though you did all those signs and performed all those miracles, they still did not believe in you. And then we find out they could not believe in you. Oh, Father, uh, we know that many, many of them perished in their sins, as Jesus promised. He told them in John chapter 8 that they were going to perish in their sins. Oh, Father, we pray that that may not be the case with anyone here. Oh, Father, we pray. And, Lord, we pray that this message would go out. We pray, Father, that uh, these kinds of messages usually tend to be the least favorite messages of anybody. Father, I think they're the most needed. And Father, we pray that, Lord, cause, oh, Father, this word to go forth for your glory and for the salvation of souls, oh, Lord. We have underestimated the fallenness of the human heart. When we look and see the degree that we have fallen, as the word uh, shows us, Father, we see, we come up with these superficial cures because we have so drastically um, underestimated the condition. Oh, Father, set us, aright, set us right, oh, Father, and help us in our unbelief. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.